Matthew chapter 1, uh, our text for today is going to be 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Peretz and Zerah by Tamar, and Peretz the father of Hetzron, and Hetzron the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atzor, and Atzor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, to the Christ, 14 generations. God had his blessing in the reading of the word. I gotta tell you something. I love Christmas. I love Christmas. But as I've gotten older, I've, I've come to love it for different reasons than, than when I was young. I've always been a giver. I, I, I love to give. I, I love giving gifts. I think I got it from my dad. My dad was a particularly joyful giver. His eyes would light up. He would get this smile on his face. Dad would make elaborate arrangements to surprise somebody with something. There was always some big presentation, some entry into a room or something like that. And Dad would just get a kick out of that. He's one of the most giving, caring people I've ever met. He takes such great joy in giving. And Christmas, Christmas was his time of year. It was a beautiful time of year for him. He just looked forward to it and and we used to go shopping downtown back then when people shopped at a place called downtown. Dad gave me that. He gave me that, that joy of giving, that unusual pleasure, so that it made Christmas a, a very special time for me too. And that's appropriate. But as time passed and I became a student of the Bible, I started looking at Christmas a little bit differently. Uh, the way I approach it has changed some. See, I, I knew before I, I, I studied the Bible that, that Christmas was not about getting. At least that's what I'd been told. It's all about giving. So 
So I thought, I thought I had Christmas down. I thought I had it nailed. I was a giver, and Christmas was about giving. thought I got it right because I love to give. So, well, in the circles I moved at back then, that, that made me a pretty popular guy. People like to receive, I like to give. Uh, it was a nice arrangement. And, and, then, and then I got saved. I got saved. And I began hearing from the church that Christmas is not about the presents and the wrapping and all the busyness and the decorations and all that stuff that goes on around the holiday season. I found out a lot of folks in the church were very cautious about this idea of gifting, uh, saying that the real meaning of Christmas is being lost. I was like, oh, the real meaning of Christmas is being lost. Well, that led me to wonder two things. If the real meaning of Christmas is not about giving, why do I have this passion? <laughs> why, why do I still enjoy it so much? But that, that was, you know, I could just figure, well, you know, I'm a human being, I've got my failings. <laughs> but the second question I had is, what is? What is the real meaning of Christmas? And we see that popping up all over, don't we? I mean, come around, right around Thanksgiving or so, and, you know, maybe right after Halloween when they start putting all of the Christmas decorations up. We start seeing things, the real meaning of Christmas. You see it on church placards. You see it in uh, uh, Sunday school plays. You, you see it in plays out in the community. You, 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 you see it on advertisements and posters, the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, and, and, you know, we're invited to come into the churches on Christmas Day and find the real meaning of Christmas. Uh, we see it on YouTube. If you did, hey, if you go home this afternoon and do a search on YouTube for the real meaning of Christian, Christmas, serious business, you'll get 7,440,000 hits. 7,440,000 versions of the real meaning for Christmas. It's incredible. Now, I didn't look at all of them. I didn't have time. But I've, I, I, I did a sampling here and there, and I've got to tell you something. Most of them either over-spiritualize Christmas, they, they make it into, into some humanitarian something or other, and a lot of them over-sentimentalize Christmas. And it seems like any Christmas movie, any little short take or anything that brings a tear to the eye seems to have the, the real meaning of Christmas embedded in it. Behind all this is the idea that, that we who are watching this stuff just don't get the real meaning of Christmas. We don't understand it. They've got to tell us. So in the middle of it all, we've been led to believe that it's a bad thing to concentrate on receiving gifts. I've got to tell you something. It's a lie. It's a lie. <gasps> oh my gosh, it's a material thing. It's a lie that it's a bad thing concentrate on receiving gifts. Now, compounding that lie is this sanitized mythological narrative that's risen up around the Christmas story. You and I have all heard it before. It's a Sunday school version of the Christmas story. It's filled with noble shepherds and nasty innkeeper, a pristine manger, three kings, camels, adoring animals. There's angels all over the place and and there's a little boy playing the drum in the background somewhere. 
So between the admonishment to avoid concentrating on the gifts and the, the beautiful, sentimental, emotionally charged nativity scene that our culture has constructed, we have this amazing, albeit flawed, picture of what many people think Christmas really is. Don't we? There's only one problem with that picture. There's no room for you and me in it. There's no room for you and me in that contemporary image of Christmas. The young couple, the family is worry-free, at least for the moment. They're surrounded by angels, surrounded by new friends. They have clean new clothes. Their new friends adore them. God has smiled down upon them, and life looks pretty good in the contemporary version of Christmas. I'm here today to tell you there's no room for us in that picture. And many of us are left standing on the outside, casual observers, wondering why if this is so great a time of year, why our lives just seem so messed up? Why are we struggling so much? We know some of the reasons. Number one, we have the wrong motives. We know we're self-centered. We know we don't have a nice, neat home. We know that our friends are not so squeaky clean, maybe our family not so likable. Even our animals betray us sometimes, the things they do when we're not around. And we're left, we're left with the feeling that the Christmas story is something that makes us feel good, at least for the moment, but hiding underneath, it, underneath that is a suspicion that we just may wake up the day after Christmas and come to the realization that nothing has changed. Same life, same context, same thing that was the day before Christmas. I want to show you this morning where the hope is in the real Christmas story. I want to show you where you and I can fit into the narrative. And it's not in that sanitary, contemporary storyline, but it's in the messy, dirty reality that is the Christmas story, the Christmas narrative, the story about the arrival of God here on earth in human form. And embedded in that real story is a lesson about receiving, about receiving a gift It may not be wrapped the way we conventionally wrap gifts, but a gift that is glorious, sparkling, and more amazing than any gift we've ever had before, a gift that is eternal. Because the baby arrives, brothers and sisters, to bring us hope. The baby comes to bring us hope. The name of this sermon is The Hope Revealed. Next week we'll look at The Hope Perfected. Same passage. Each of the Gospels starts out in a different manner. Uh, Mark begins with the story of John the Baptist. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that grew up in the wilderness and ate bugs. Uh, How can you not want to read the rest of this story? He's the forerunner of Jesus Christ. So uh, Luke starts out with this this, uh, first person. Uh, I've experienced a lot of this myself. I'm real close to the people that have experienced it directly, and I want to get all this down and give you all the details before they fade. 
So uh, there's a, a beautiful narrative right there. And John starts with creation. And he places Jesus there at creation and the word and everything. Who could not want to read the rest of those stories? Then we got Matthew. Matthew begins with a genealogy. What? You heard it. You know, there's a long list of hard to pronounce names that have little meaning to anybody who's just a casual reader of the Bible. Who are those people? A lot of folks find themselves kind of skimming over these sections. Passages like ours today. But if we're willing to slow down, if we're willing to look at what Matthew's doing, there, there's a wealth of riches in here. Uh, if, if we can just kind of mine Matthew's intent. First, we have to understand that Matthew's audience is Jewish. He's writing to the Jews. And to the Jews, these genealogies are vitally important. The Jews kept these elaborate birth records. Uh, whose father was whose father and who was married to who. And, uh, and then they did that for two reasons. Number one, they wanted to make sure that when the Messiah got there, they could determine that the Messiah traced his lineage all the way back to David. We'll talk about that in a second. But the other thing that they wanted to make sure that they had a permanent record on was who owned the land. When they, you know, we're watching this roll out in Joshua right now. God has already given them the land. They're moving into the land and taking it. God has given them the land. They're about to divide it up in Joshua. And they want to make sure that the land stays in the possession of those that it was given to. So they rely on the genealogy. They serve a very practical purpose. So when Matthew starts his very first line with, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he immediately has the Jews' attention. He, he, he knows that, they know that it's not only important, but it may be absolutely vital to their faith and their walk to hear what he has to say. It's as if someone walked in here today uh, with a document under his arm and pulled it out and said, I have here the original copy of the uh, Declaration of Independence. And it has some surprising things in here. Listen carefully as I read it. I would hope that we would all pay close attention. That's the attention that the Jews are giving to Matthew with this opening statement. Now notice that the first two names that are mentioned are, are David and Abraham, two of the most revered, most respected men in all the history of Israel. Abraham was the father of the nation. Abraham was the chosen one. He was the very first Hebrew. There were no Hebrews before him. David was perhaps their greatest king. He was a shepherd warrior who brought the tribes together, united them, united their armies, and brought military victory. David was also the one whom God promised the throne of Israel to. God promised David that a direct descendant of his lineage would sit on the throne forever and become Messiah to the Jews. So Matthew's genealogy, if you listen to it carefully, look at it later on in your book, comes in three sections. And even, even that structure is meaningful. We'll hear more about it next week on Christmas Day. But this morning... This morning I want to look at the people in this lineage because that's where we're going to see the hope that Jesus Christ brings us. There's some pretty startling folks in here. I have to be honest, if, if I was writing a story about the deliverer of our nation, I might not be so blunt. Uh, I'd I, I want to make it flattering. I, I wouldn't want to lie about him, but I might not mention some of the darker things, some of the, the uh, more... Uh, disreputable points in the past that, about this potential leader. Uh, it wouldn't really serve any purpose. Uh, no normal 
leader is going to be served well by something like that. But I think we'd have to admit that Jesus Christ is not a normal leader. In Christ, we're not dealing with a normal person. We're looking at the Son of God. Come down to earth. And for those theologians among us, we know that he not only is the Son of God, but he is God himself. Coming to work out his plan of redemption for his precious children. Let me make you aware of this right up front as you look through these genealogies in Matthew and in Luke. Uh, Matthew does indeed leave some people out. That It's not a complete genealogy. It's not exhaustive in its members. To the Jew, he'd be more concerned with Matthew, Matthew's form, Matthew's structure, with the way he puts these verses together, rather than the accuracy of the content. The Jew wouldn't put up with lies, but we have to understand something as we read through these genealogies. An ancient Hebrew, when he says one man was the son of another, he would really be saying that there may be a generation or two or perhaps several generations between this father and his son. They're just direct descendants, rather than trying to pair them up, father and son, father and son. So reading this with Western eyes, we could misunderstand exactly what's happening and maybe miss an important message. Again, we'll have more about that next week. So Matthew's form, his structure is revealing, but his genealogy is not complete. Some are left out. The amazing thing about that is it's not the ones we would think would be left out. Matthew doesn't leave the embarrassing ones or the shameful ones out. As a matter of fact, Matthew seems to make a point out of including the embarrassing and shameful ones in the genealogy. Matthew's intention is not to cover anything up. It's not to overemphasize the goodness of Jesus' lineage as if that might prove that he was good in itself, but to establish Jesus' kingship, to establish his right to the throne. So if you notice, you go from the beginning of Abraham, and it it leads right into the kings, and then names kings from then then on out. So Matthew wants to establish Jesus' credentials. We see Abraham and Isaac, and right there we should know something's up. Because we don't know much about Isaac, do we? Isaac's main claim to fame is that his father tried to sacrifice him. Isn't that what we remember Isaac for? His father took him out three days away from where his home was, built an altar, tied him up, put him on the altar, and was getting ready to kill him until God stopped him. So, you know, we know a lot about Abraham We know a lot about his background and what led to that and what happened after that, but we don't know much about Isaac, do we? We don't know how Isaac felt about lying there on that funeral pyre. We can conjecture, but we just don't know. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. Now, here's another winner, because Jacob is a thief. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. Seems to take after his mother, who helped him out with some of that stuff. But God blesses Jacob in spite of himself. Jacob is transformed by God. If you follow the storyline, Jacob becomes Israel. They name the nation after him. Jacob fathers the twelve who will become the leaders of the tribes of Israel, including Judah, the tribe from which David will come. Judah fathers Peretz, a national hero, but look, it mentions Peretz's mother. Our first woman in the geology, Tamar. Tamar, a Canaanite. 
Not only a Canaanite, I mean, bad enough, we've mentioned a woman here in this. We'll get to that in a minute. But now it's a Canaanite, a Gentile, originally married to Judah's son, Ur, an evil son of Judah. Ur dies. Onan, another brother, another son of Judah, takes Tamar as his wife, as the law says he should. But he's a bad guy too, and he dies. So Judah is watching all this happen, and he's getting suspicious. Everybody that marries Tamar dies. I've lost two sons. What's going on here? Okay, so he sends Tamar to go live with her father. That makes Tamar suspicious that she's being cut out of her inheritance. So she tricks Judah into fathering two children with her. Peretz and Zerah. Then we see this long line of leaders and we come to Rahab. Another woman. Rahab is of questionable moral value, questionable moral reputation. Her family, the only ones that survived the attack of Jericho. And so not only is she a woman, but, but she has a bad reputation. She's a Gentile. Uh, uh, normally she would be considered unworthy of a relationship with God. Yet here she is, prominently in the family tree of Jesus Christ. And then we see another woman. You should be aware it's highly unusual for a woman to be named in Jewish genealogies. It's not unheard of, but it's just unusual. And this woman is Ruth. She's a Moabitess, one of the sworn enemies of Israel. So she, like Tamar, is a Gentile. She married one of the sons of Elimelech. Now you think that, that, has, that has some value to it, but listen, Elimelech fled the promised land. There was a drought and instead of holding on to the land he had been given, instead of trusting God, he ran, and he ran to Moab, an enemy country. He has two sons. One of them is married to Ruth. They both die. And, and Elimelech's wife, Naomi, comes back to Canaan, back to their land, and Ruth accompanies her. Boaz, Boaz takes Ruth as a wife. But we need to understand that, again, Ruth is undesirable, and the only thing that allows Moab, uh, uh, Boaz to take Ruth as a wife is the fact that she was married to the son of an unfaithful Jew. So Matthew's first section ends with King David. Huh. It goes on to David's son Solomon, takes over after David. But look at how Matthew points out Solomon. David is his father by the wife of another man. You know who we're talking about? Bathsheba, another woman. Her name is not mentioned, but she is in every way prominent in the family tree of Jesus Christ. Bathsheba is an unfaithful, adulterous wife, married to David, who was a great king, a great warrior, but he's also a murderer. He had Bathsheba's husband killed so that he could take her as his wife. It, it's shaping up to be some kind of family, isn't it? Whew, man, they're tough. They've been through some stuff. Then we see Rehoboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son, but he was responsible for the dividing of the kingdom in the two countries, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, which ultimately will lead to their downfall. Rehoboam is king of Judah. He's not a good king, 
And his son Abijah is even worse. Now, notice this. God is being faithful to keep a descendant of David on the throne of Israel, regardless of their character. Some are bad kings. Some are even very bad kings. But God's promises are not predicated on the type of people they are. They're predicated on God's integrity and God's truth, his holiness, and his perfection. He's not waiting for them to come around to being good people. And after a few godly kings, we see Joram. Here's what 2 Kings has to say about King Joram. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done. And the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David, his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. Joram's son, Uzziah, starts out good, but eventually falls victim to his own pride. Second Chronicles says, when he, Uzziah, was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Ahaz follows Uzziah, and Ahaz is such a bad and evil king, it leads to judgment falling on all of Judah when the Assyrians invade because of Ahaz's evil nature. Instead of repenting, Ahaz turns and starts worshiping pagan gods instead of turning towards the one true God. He builds altars to them. King Hezekiah comes along and tries to undo a lot of the evil that the guys before him did, but he gets overly prideful. He falls to the same thing, and his actions eventually lead to an invasion by an even worse enemy, the Babylonians. doesn't happen during his watch, but everything that he does sets it in motion. And, and you know what? He's one of the good kings. Manasseh is the worst of them all. He institutes worship of Baal. He, he, he forms alliances with ungodly nations. He desecrates the temple. Late in his reign, uh, oddly enough, Manasseh repents. And God blesses him. It's a spectacular display of God's willingness to forgive those people who ask for forgiveness. Amos, or Amon, was so bad that he was killed by his own court officials. Jeconiah loses the city of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, that thing that Hezekiah put in place. Jeconiah lives in exile while his uncle takes over, family squabbles over the throne. Now we go to the third section. We don't know much about the people in the third section. There are more of us in the, what we call the intertestamental period. Other than that, section culminates with a man named Joseph and a girl named Mary. These, all these people, are the people in the bloodline of Jesus Christ. If you're listening closely, you heard that nearly half of all those that Matthew mentions are they're fairly terrible people, aren't they? There are a lot of evil, prideful, ungodly, unholy kings. There are some good ones. There are some good ones that turn bad. There are some bad ones that turn good. They're horrible brothers. They're degenerate, angry, and abusive fathers. They're mothers with questionable backgrounds and manipulative backgrounds. 
They're fornicators, liars, cheaters, idolaters, thieves, killers, prostitutes, diseased people, poor leaders, and abject failures. This is not your typical Christmas sermon. But that's what we've seen, isn't it? Does this sound like a family you might know? Let me ask you this. Does this sound like your family? I've got to tell you, it sounds like mine. Does it sound, does any of it sound like you? I can see myself in this. I can see myself included in some of these people. Do you realize, do you realize what Matthew has done? And, and he, he's not trying to portray a dysfunctional family. He's not trying to dig up the dirt on everybody and make them look bad. He's showing us how God came to earth. He's showing us the path that God took to, to produce what we call the incarnation. That's the intent of this first chapter, to show us how God's plan had been working over hundreds of years to come to this moment to show us how faithful God is. We saw that in our story in Joshua. Listen, God used all of these people. He used every one of them to bring his son to the world, to bring redemption. They were all part of his plan. He took the good, he took the bad, he took the ugly, and he used them for his glory. God didn't bring his son through some royal dynasty. He didn't bring him through a cultured, sophisticated, rich family. His son arrived on earth through a family just like yours and mine. Through a family that ultimately produced what? A man who worked with the wood. And a young girl, innocent but, but young. Through people who had no stature. Through people who had no resources. Through people who had nothing going for them other than God had been working in them all their lives whether they knew it or not. I wonder, I wonder if they felt like that was true all the time. I wonder if they had that moment where they looked around and said, you know, I've been looking around, man, and these circumstances are just so dark. There's no hope here. I don't think God's working in my life. I don't feel like he's working in my life. I wonder if they ever had that moment. You know what? We don't know. We don't know if they ever felt hopeless. We don't know. But what we do know is this. If God can use someone like them, if God can use, redeem, and transform somebody like Manasseh, if God called the line of David to sit on a throne and then made it happen in spite of those people, not because of those people, then God can make things happen in our lives as well. In spite of us, if he used men and women like them, then God can use men and women like you and me. Now, I know this is true 
because we have this genealogy. We have this official record because God took that messy, gritty, tattered, and frayed family, a family that just might have been at the lowest point they had ever been in their entire history. Look at them. Joseph is betrothed to a woman who's having a baby, and it's not his. Mary could be stoned for this. Joseph could be stoned for not putting her away. They have nothing. They are literally in a barn waiting for the baby to come. Again, we over-romanticize this, but when is the last time you've been, this is horse country, when's the last time you were in a barn? Maybe even a clean barn. Would you want to have a baby there? Can you imagine having a baby in an environment like that? The barn Mary and Joseph are in is not just a barn, but it's in a small town, and it is far, far from their home. And the family that they're visiting has most likely treated them quite rudely. It's why they're in the barn. And the baby is on the way. He's coming. Meanwhile, angels visit a group of shepherds out in the fields, social outcasts that were living with their sheep to tell them that the Savior of the world is being born in that town right over there about a half mile away and that they should go welcome them. Wow. God is just doing things the way he always does them, isn't he? Working in and through the lives of people that the world doesn't see doing amazing things and working spectacular miracles with nothing and doing it just because he's God. So into this dirty, unsanitary, primitive, dark, and cold night comes the Messiah. God himself. Come down to earth, not in the form of a mighty warrior, but in the form of a baby, a little baby, a baby dependent on his mother and father, two people who have no other choice other than to be dependent upon God. They don't have anywhere else to turn. They've been reduced to nothing. And look what God does when they have no one to depend on but him. God walks into their lives. He takes on flesh and lives with them. He becomes part of their lives. They come into physical contact with him. God coming to live among his chosen people. It's incredible. God coming to live among us, walking with us. God on earth, not just for a visit, not just to come down and show himself, but to stay for a lifetime. He stayed for over 30 years. We miss the magnitude of that. Why? Why would he come? Brothers and sisters, he came to save us. He came to save you and me. Do we need to be saved? Yes. Yes, we do. We know we need to be saved because we are unable to help ourselves as much as all those people in the genealogy were unable to help themselves. We can't make it happen on our own. We've all sinned. We've all fallen. God came to pick us up. He came to drag us out of the dirt and into his glory. And how was he going to do that? He would spend, listen, he would spend those 30 years walking to the cross. He was walking to the cross. 
the baby came down to go to the cross. See, brothers and sisters, that's the real Christmas story. The manger, the manger's just a prelude. The story of Christmas points us towards the cross where Jesus takes on our sin and gives us he gives us hope. And all he asks from us is that we believe in him. That we repent. Ask for his forgiveness. And believe that that's what he did. Did you hear that? We give him our belief. And he gives us hope. Catch that? The real meaning of Christmas is the hope we find in the exchange of eternal gifts. A story that tells us that God redeems people, that he sent his only son to die for their sins, that he arrived on a dark, cold night in the middle of nowhere, landing in a feeding trough, that's what a manger is, a feeding trough, to give us a hope that is reflected that night in the eyes of the shepherds, in the eyes of Joseph and Mary. The hope and the promise that he'll use them, that he'll use you and me in the same way that he used the people in that genealogy. I think my dad had it right. I think he knew. I don't know that he could articulate it, but I think he knew. Christmas is about giving. But it's about receiving, too. We don't want to miss this. The world has it right, but most of them miss it in how they walk it out. The world and the myths surrounding the Christmas story are shabby counterfeits of the real thing, aren't they? Fairy tales compared to the real story. The real story is about God giving and us receiving. The greatest gift any of us could ever have. Hope. Brothers and sisters, our hope, our only hope is in Christ Jesus. It's the only hope we have in Christ Jesus and the work he did on the cross. And the Christmas story begins with the manger and ends with the cross. But there's a coda to it. It doesn't just stop at the cross. For those who believe in him, the real ending of the story is in eternity, united with him, worshiping him forever. Let's pray.